Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, and I know a couple of you, my name is Megan Anders. I am an attending intensivist in the surgical ICU, and I'm also an anesthesiologist, and I'll be working with some of you in the OR when you come through for uh, procedures. Today I'm going to discuss emergency management of surgically altered airways. And this is a relevant topic for surgical practitioners, but also non-surgical intensivists, um, because all of us in some capacity, no matter what type of unit we work in, come in contact with patients who have altered airways of some type. Um, the type of airway may be different between units, um, and we'll talk about how that's important and what you need to know. So for our session today, I'm going to assume that most of you have a non-surgical background. Anybody with a surgical background? All right. Um, we're going to spend some time reviewing technical details about the surgical procedures. Um, and I'm especially going to give you the details that matter for short and long-term post-operative management. Uh, we'll be discussing differences in tracheostomy procedure, tube types, how to manage a blocked, dislodged, or bleeding trach. Um, we'll talk a little bit about partial versus total laryngectomy, why that's important, how you provide positive pressure ventilation to these patients in an emergency. And then we're going to discuss a little bit about the challenges created by T-tubes, tracheal T-tubes, um, and some creative management solutions for those. Collectively, I refer to all of these. Oops, sorry. Collectively, I refer to all of these as um, surgically altered airways because these are patients that have their air and gas exchange coming through something other than their nose and mouth, some type of stoma, some type of tube, um, and that's obviously how they're going to get oxygenation in an emergency situation as well. I'm also going to review this emergency response in the framework of a patient safety program. I want you to leave here today with a functional knowledge of how to actually put your hands on a patient with a trach and take care of that patient, but I also want you to think about how you could engage the nurses, the respiratory therapists, and whatever unit you ultimately go on to practice in, in promoting um, safety for this vulnerable uh, patient population. I'll introduce you a little bit to a project that's underway here. Um, if you're already a practicing airway expert in the room, I know we have at least a couple, um, Take this talk and, and try to pick out some of the pearls that you think might be effective. For those of us that deal with airways all the time, it can be really easy to forget the basics. I was talking with Ellen um, before this, and I said some of this might be stating the obvious, and she said sometimes the obvious is, is exactly what people need to hear. You know, when you're teaching residents, when you're reviewing things at the bedside with a nurse, some of this stuff um, really does bear repeating, even if it seems completely obvious to you. So imagine that you're called to a COBE, and you arrive on the floor, a whole bunch of people are crowded around the patient and everybody's looking a little more anxious than usual. Primary service has been paged, they're on the way, um, but no one really can tell you much about this patient. And as you head to the bed, you see this or this or this, you know, or this, and you really, you know, you ask what's going on, what type of airway does this patient have, and no one can really give you much of an answer. So this is a good time to have a systemic approach, and I'm going to try to guide you through that today. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of discussing emergency management, I want you to just take a second and think about all the ways that patients with altered airways are vulnerable. So we tend to think immediately about the early and late complications, the you know, airway loss during a tracheostomy procedure, the damage to adjacent structures, late complications of the procedure itself, like tracheomalacia, granulation tissue, stenosis, bleeding. But there's a lot that these patients are susceptible to that has to do more with the infrastructure, people that may not have the right supplies close to them to manage an emergency or people who are being cared for by practitioners who don't have all the information they need to take care of a patient safely. Fundamentally, we're talking about emergency oxygenation. So seconds or minutes um, can really make the difference to these patients and you won't always have time to rely on a surgical service to respond or um, you know, for the primary team for a patient to get to the bedside. All right, so let's start about talking about tracheostomies. 
Just to review a couple of the basics, tracheostomy is a procedure that's performed for several different indications. It can be emergent for airway control, airway obstruction, upper airway edema, facial trauma. That's one category that we're all pretty familiar with. Um, Semi-elective is a lot of what we see um, in the non-surgical units. These are prolonged respiratory failure. Somebody's got their two or three weeks on the vent. We think it's going to help advance their care. Um, also in spot high, high spinal cord injury. Um, the semi-elective or elective for airway protection. So these are patients who've had a traumatic brain injury, a stroke, uh, maybe have severe sleep apnea or some type of vocal cord dysfunction. Um, and then some tracheostomies are performed um, electively for perioperative airway access. So these are patients that are having the major head and neck dissections, um, oftentimes for malignancy. To review the anatomy quickly for um, tracheostomy, there, um, you have thyroid cartilage and the uh, cricoid cartilage. Um, cricothyroidotomy is performed through the cricothyroid membrane. It's not what we're going to be talking about today. Um, then I want you to take a look between the first and second and second and third tracheal rings. And you'll see that between the second and third there, there's a box where um, they're calling it the standard tracheostomy site. Most open or surgical trachs are performed here. Uh, percutaneous trachs may be between the first and second or second and third, um, depending on the approach and the, and the individual patient anatomy. So let's talk a little bit about percutaneous versus the open surgical trachs. Um, it's quite important to know the difference, and I think this is one of the things that tends to surprise people when I give this talk, is they really hadn't considered um, much about why this might matter for emergency management. Um, couple things to know about a perk trach. Um, this is uh, the procedure that's often done at the bedside in many critical care units. It can be performed in the OR, so the location doesn't necessarily tell you um, what a patient had done. Percutaneous trachs are generally recommended for patients who have straightforward upper airway anatomy. So these are not going to be performed in the patients with the um, extensive facial trauma, the head and neck uh, dissections from malignancy, um, and they're more often done for semi-elective indications. Has anybody participated in one of these? Okay. So this is, um, when it's done as a bedside procedure, you may ask, be asked to be involved in it. It's oftentimes done under bronchoscopic guidance where you'll... Um, pull the endotracheal tube back, take a look with the bronchoscope, and the, um, there's an incision made through the skin, um, and a little bit of tissue dissection done, but the actual entrance into the trachea is done with a needle and then a guide wire um, with dilators that basically do the same Selvinger technique uh, you would, similar for a central line. Um, and then the last dilator has the trach seated on it. What it's important to kind of visualize for that is that that really expands the tissue out only as big as the last dilator or the, the trach. So uh, the tissue's kind of snug up against there. Why does that matter? Well, if that trach comes out in the early, you know, post-trach period, those tissues are going to immediately collapse back down. It's going to be much harder to reinsert a percutaneous trach in the early period. The good news is, is that these patients have, quote-unquote, friendly upper airway anatomy. So if the trach comes out, you're much more likely to be successful ventilating from the mouth or reintubating from above uh, in that early period. So it's important to know if your patient had a perk trach that it was done that way and how long ago it was done. Um, the open or surgical approach can be used in any patient. So um, you know, any, any patient that needs a, a trach can have this done. Um, there's a couple different techniques that can be used. They can do a partial ring re removal. They can do a slit trach. They can also do something called a Bjork flap, where, uh, as you see um, on this illustration, um, it's kind of a flap down, but there can be barn door flaps that open. Um, there's a couple different ways they can uh, open the trachea. Here you see in this illustration, they're actually maturing or suturing the trachea all the way out to the skin. And you can see this is a much more stable opening. So early postoperative period for this patient has a more stable 
surgical stoma created um, that would be easier to reinsert a trachea. And these are going to be done in patients who have, um, especially in patients who have complex or difficult upper airway anatomy um, or other head and neck indications for having the trachea in the first place. All right. Just a quick word on something you might see um, with some of the surgical trachs is stay sutures. Has anybody ever seen these with a trach? All right. These are these strings that are kind of coming out. They're either tegadermed or stary stripped down to the chest. And everybody says, don't touch them. Um, that's usually the only information that gets passed along is don't touch those. <laughs> these are sutures that are actually placed down into the trachea walls. And they can be used to lift and elevate the trachea um, up towards the skin and to open that stoma back up. And that's actually a very helpful safety feature for you. If a patient has a functionally obliterated upper airway, and let's say they had their massive you know, um, uh, resection with a graft and a flap, and you're not going to be able to get in from above, if, if they have stay sutures in place, if the trach comes out, immediately you're going to be able to use those to help guide a trach back in place in an emergency. So um, they are often, place will stay, often will stay in place until uh, seven days of the first trach change, um, and that'll depend a little bit. And the illustrations here are just showing you um, on the left, uh, which is figure A, um, just the, where the stay sutures are. This is a, a pediatric example. And on the right, uh, the trachea has actually been matured or sewn up to the skin, so much more stable stoma. Wouldn't be able to talk about tracheostomy without talking about tracheostomy tubes. And I think, um, you know, as, um, again, as I do the education on this, I've found that this is something that people are sometimes confused with or um, uh, not really aware of all their options. And this is really important for emergency management. So the first thing that distinguishes one trach tube from another is whether there's a cuff. And that sounds very obvious, but a cuff has to be present and inflated to provide adequate positive pressure ventilation through that um, trach tube. Another thing that's not as obvious is whether a trach has a dual or a single cannula. And what I mean by that is um, some, but not all, trachs will have this safety feature of having two tubes, one inside the other. And they all connect a little differently. This one has a clip. Some of them will have a rotation. Uh, some of them actually have a little um, uh, piece that you have to kind of grab on and pull out. But the inner cannula of a dual cannula trach comes out very easily. This stays in the patient, so you haven't lost your airway, but you've cleared the, the tube. And so you can see if you had, let's say, a blood clot or a lot of secretions that clogged this. I think there's a very graphic illustration of a clogged trach tube there. This is a life-saving maneuver. This is a safety feature of a trach. Um, so it's important when you're taking care of a patient with a trach to know whether they have this or not. Um, and it's important to reinforce that with the people who are providing care at the bedside. So if a patient, you know, if you're having difficulty bagging a patient with a trach, your first, one of your first maneuvers is going to be to pull this out and visually inspect, is it patent? In this type of trach, this has to be placed back in uh, to connect to a resuscitation bag. So um, you will have to uh, have it back in, either clear it or you have a replacement available. Um, you could steal one out of another similar sized um, regular trach set if you needed to, um, but that's a safety feature. Not all trachs have these, and so some of the brands um, you know, are meant to be, uh, particularly the adjustable length trachs, which is uh, what's shown in this picture here, that's not a dual cannula trach. So if that patient is having a pneumonia, a lot of secretions, they're at really high risk for having a blockage of their only cannula. Um, this is where uh, having humidified gases all the time is important to help uh, prevent those secretions from becoming impacted in there and good regular trach care um, by the people at the bedside. Um, something else that isn't necessarily intuitive is that the tracheostomy tubes are given as a size. You might hear somebody say a 
eight Shiley or a six Bavona, that does not nearly mean the same thing for every brand. Um, and it also doesn't meet, equate really to an endotracheal tube. So you have an inner diameter and an outer diameter. And it's important you understand what you're referencing. So for instance, a four Shiley trach is actually bigger outer diameter than a 6-0 endotracheal tube. Um, there's really not a good way to do this other than to just look on the box and see how big. But if you're thinking about swapping out, you're going to want to know the outer diameter of what you have so that you can reference the outer diameter of what, whatever you'd like to put back in there. And um, that information is found on the, on the trach itself. It's found on the endotracheal tubes in the small print, um, on the wrappers, if you're trying to think about um, swapping out for an ET tube. Um, and just remember that it doesn't necessarily mean anything. For the Bavona brand, I think, that tends to correlate directly with the inner diameter. But for the Shiley uh, brand trachs, it doesn't, um, it doesn't have really much correlation at all. Another just quick note, in this institution, we tend to say Bavona as a type of trach. Bavona has many different um, types of trachs. They are uh, more of a brand. Um, and even with Shiley, there can be cuffed, uncuffed. So try to get your practitioners, your respiratory therapists, your nurses to be as precise as they can with their language to help you understand what you're dealing with. All right, so a um, couple other types of tubes I just want to review because you'll see these more commonly on the floor. They're not quite as common in the acute care setting, but there is such thing as a fenestrated trach tube. And this has, um, this, in this picture, this one has a cuff. Typically, they're going to be uncuffed because they tend to be used for patients who do not require positive pressure ventilation, who are you know, being downsized and, and uh, progressing towards breathing on their own. A fenestrated tube allows passage of the air up through the vocal cords so a patient can vocalize. Um, they can, a fenestrated inner cannula could be replaced with a non-fenestrated inner cannula to help direct more of the air down towards the lungs. But if you encounter these in an emergency situation, you more often than not are going to want to think about switching out to a regular cuffed non-fenestrated tube to provide effective positive pressure ventilation. Um, fenestrated tubes in general can be associated with more granulation tissue um, and malposition of them if it's rotated or otherwise um, uh, suboptimally seated. Um, and you're using, trying to use positive pressure ventilation, you can end up with uh, high pressures and sub-Q air. Uh, where you didn't want it. So if um, somebody's saying they have a fenestrated tube and you think you can switch it out, uh, that's probably a reasonable thing to consider. Metal trach tubes are another thing that you'll see. These are, tend to be in patients who have had their stoma for a long time. It's matured and you're not going to have to worry about it instantly closing back up the second the trach comes out, which is a nice feature. Um, originally, all the metal trachs um, come with an inner cannula. And you see the middle picture there has an outer cannula, an inner cannula that actually adapts to a, um, a resuscitation bag, and then an obturator. Um, if you come upon an unconscious patient who has a metal trach, you have a couple options. You could remove that and put in an endotracheal tube, inflate the balloon, do some positive pressure ventilation. You could swap it out for a plastic cuffed um, trach tube. Or you can, um, if you don't have any of that available, you can actually adapt. You can pull the adapter off of an um, endotracheal tube and sort of seat it down into that, um, uh, let me use my pointer, down into, you know what, I'm going to mess that up, down into the, um, the, you know, the outer cannula lumen there. Um, you'll have to find the right size endotracheal tube to do that, but that is one way that you can get a metal trach hooked up to a uh, resuscitation bag. If you're trying to deliver positive pressure ventilation that way, remember that you'll have a significant leak out the mouth and nose, um, but you can cover that to try to direct more air. And this is you know, the first couple seconds of emergency management when you're just trying to get some amount of oxygen into the lungs. 
All right. So let's talk for a second about removing the tracheostomy tube because I'm going to review an algorithm at the end here that's going to ask you to do this. And this is a, you know, a, big, a big deal. Um, when you're taking care of a patient that you don't know how long the trach's been in there, you have no idea what type of trach it was, this isn't a decision that you can take lately, um, especially if the patient appears to have a difficult upper airway or has a new or um, you know, difficult to perform trach. But remember that a non-functioning trach is of no benefit to the patient and may be of considerable harm. So if the trach is dislodged, not functioning in some way, um, the patient may actually do better without it there. Um, if the trach has come out for some reason, the trach fell out, or you had to remove it, um, it's important to reassess both airways. Look, look listen, feel, um, try to do some catenography at the trach stoma and at the mouth. You don't necessarily know which one you're going to be more successful at. Um, reinserting the trach may not always be required if the patient's spontaneously ventilating and is able to move some amount of air through their stoma. So just take a second to assess whether they're actually doing it on their own after the trach's out. Um, and then um, as you move forward, you're going to attempt ventilation and possibly reintubation um, through both the upper airway and the stoma. Um, I guess the one thing I'd say here is just avoid getting into the situation in the first place um, by making sure that your trach patients have adequately humidified gases, that you have a dual cannula trach in whenever possible, and never leave a dual lumen um, trach in without the inner cannula in place, because remember, that's your safety mechanism. So if that's a pop-out for an emergency, that's fine, but you never want to let them hang out without that inner cannula. All right, so when you have a dislodged trach, things that favor um, orotracheal efforts, so intubating from above or ventilating from above, are the patients that are going to have a newer trach and the patients that had a percutaneous approach. Remember I said those are the friendly upper airways more often than not. Um, the transtracheal efforts, or trying to reintubate at the stoma, are going to be favored in established or well-healed trachs that have been there for a long time. Uh, patients that had that open surgical approach, especially if you have a stay suture or a tracheal flap matured back to the skin. Um, and these are the patients where, you know, clearly have a difficult upper airway. Um, you may need, no matter, regardless of the trach age, you may need to focus at the stoma first. And you may need to have teams working on both at the same time. When I say newer, um, I mean less than three days for a surgical trach or generally less than seven to ten days for a percutaneous trach. So perc trach under, you know, week and a half, um, you really need to think hard about just reintubating from above. So if you have to reinsert this fresh trach, you're unable to intubate or unable to ventilate from above, um, your best practice is actually going to be try to use a fiber optic scope. Um, does anybody know what an Aintree catheter is? Okay, this is a, um, a catheter that's uh, somewhat stiff and it fits over a fiber optic scope. Um, and you can guide the fiber optic scope in place. Actually, I'll just show you. There's a, a picture here. So this has a, um, an Aintree over it. The, um, you guide the fiber optic into places like a very small endotracheal tube, think of it that way. Um, and then you can remove the scope and then you can use that Aintree as a, um, a stent to slide a trach or an endotracheal tube over. So it's a Selvinger technique, but it's an airway catheter. You can also provide oxygenation through the catheter. It has an adapter, so it's similar to a, um, a shorter, uh, what we use here, a Cook catheter, um, that can be uh, adapted over a bronchoscope. So um, using that to sort of stent your way back into the airway um, after you've seen the, the carina with a fiber optic scope would really be best practice, in addition to using stay sutures to help elevate or open the trachea. Better than nothing is going to be blind or digitally, digitally assisted insertion. I've also um, seen people cut off an NG tube in an emergency and just sort of put that down into the trachea and again put the trach over that just as so something is guiding, um, guiding the way. 
Um, whenever you reinsert a trach, you want to make sure that you have the obturator in place. This is an obturator. Um, you have to have the inner cannula removed from the trach, and it basically just occludes the, um, the lumen so that you don't kind of core anything out. Remember that when you're in the heat of the moment and you're reinserting this trach and you know, it's potentially a newer type trach, the major risk you're looking for is the creation of a false passage, so accidentally dissecting the tissues. Um, the way you would know that is if it's very difficult to reinsert, um, although sometimes that can fool you, and sometimes getting into the trachea can feel difficult as well. Um, so the major risk that you'd see if you did create a false passage is with that first um, inspiration is sort of subcute air. So you want to have your CO2 detection on immediately and really be watching with a high threshold if you're at all unsure about um, the replacement. Dummy's not very easy. All right. So I'm going to take a quick break and talk a little bit about tracheostomal bleeding because this is another one of the dreaded complications of a trach. Um, the, what we're really worried about here, so you can have a little bit of sort of perioperative bleeding in the first 48 hours, you know, you call that sort of the trach edges, but after 48 to 72 hours, um, if the, especially if the trach is not seated well or the patient, um, you know, has sort of a low flow cardiac output state, you're at risk for having um, uh, mucosal necrosis in the trachea that actually um, can fistulize through to the innominate artery or the brachiocephalic artery. This is a huge surgical emergency. This is going to be a patient who is hemorrhaging, and it's going to require immediate transport to the OR for sternotomy for control of that bleeding. Um, so let's break this down. Bleeding in the first 48 hours after a trach is not going to be this complication. It could be, you know, um, surgical bleeding. It could be, um, you know, in the first week or two, it can, it can be granulation tissue, and I would go ahead and say it usually is, but if you have a trach that's bleeding after 48 or 72 hours, you're obligated to kind of make sure that it isn't uh, tracheonominate fistula, okay? Um, look, trying to look for a little bit of evidence to help guide you guys. Um, there's not a lot. There's a lot of case series. This tends to leave a very big impression when it happens to a practitioner. Um, one guide says that more than 10 mLs um, of, of bleeding from the trach should be considered arterial after that 48 to 72 hours. Um, but I think it's important to remember that small amounts of bleeding can be important too. More than 50% of patients who go on to have a hemorrhage from a tracheonominate fistula have had some type of sentinel bleed. Um, so, you know, a couple bloody secretions, week, week or so into your, into your trach. Um, you know, if you haven't, don't have another good source to account for that, you do need to take this seriously. Um, the things that are the risk factors here are malposition of the tube or a high cuff pressure. And this is why your respiratory therapists are so diligently checking the cuff pressure. And you can see in this illustration, um, the cuff is sort of laying right between, right behind the trachea um, with the artery laying right in front of it. So what happens if you have this going on? You're, you know, you've had your sentinel bleed and now you have uncontrolled hemorrhage. The first step in emergency management for a tracheonominate fistula is actually to just try to hyperinflate the trach cuff. So in um, a significant proportion of these cases, this can actually tamponade the bleeding um, and stabilize the patient long enough to get them to the OR. Um, your, um, so try to you know, get as much air in there as you can. Avoid the urge to take the trach out at that point. Um, just try to, get, try to get that tamponade happening. You'll need to assess whether there's bleeding into the airway versus only external bleeding because the patients are at, at risk for different things. A patient who's bleeding externally obviously have a risk of hemorrhage, but a patient who's bleeding internally is also contaminating their airways and is going to um, die of anoxia, unfortunately, before they die of exsanguination. So 
Um, if you are unable, so you've tried to hyperinflate the cuff, um, if that's still uncontrolled, um, the next recommendation is for translaryngeal intubation, quote unquote, intubate from above. Um, put the cuff distal, um, you know, almost down at the carina, um, as close to the carina as you can get, and then try to um, reach in and apply digital compression through the stoma by compressing the artery up against the sternum. So take a second, picture how you would do that. Finger in through a trach stoma after the trach's been removed and try to hook the artery up against the sternum. Um, if that, if this has been successfully done and practitioners have ridden literally, I mean, this is the, this is the big TV drama, kind of we're rushing to the OR and somebody's riding on the bed holding the, holding the bleeder. So um, this unfortunately is associated with very high mortality, as you can imagine, but um, there are a couple steps you can do to try to temporize in the meantime. All right, so quick review of tracheostomy. Block trach first, um, so block trach, remove the inner cannula if it's present, clear the obstruction quickly. If it's a dislodged fresh trach, take a second, think, do I need to reinsert this right now? Um, if you can ignore the stoma and intubate and ventilate from above, go ahead and do that while you, um, you know, get your bronchoscope to the bedside, think about replacing that trach. Remember that if a patient has a percutaneous trach, it's more gonna be more difficult to reinsert in that first seven to 10 days but more likely to have a good upper airway. And for a bleeding trach, um, for a small bleed, you need to investigate, um, you know, call your surgeons back, have them um, come do a bronchoscopy with you. You can all kind of check it out together. Um, and uh, if it's hemorrhaging, hyperinflate the cuff first. All right. So let's talk a little bit. Um, I said I'd talk about laryngectomy and T-tube quickly. Um, for laryngectomy patients, has anybody ever cared for one? Yeah, okay. Um, the indication for laryngectomy is laryngeal cancer, um, and it's really important, again, here to be precise with language. Complete and total laryngectomy means something very different than partial laryngectomy. For a complete and total laryngectomy, um, the, the trachea becomes completely rerouted. It no longer connects to the mouth and nose. It comes right out to the surface of the skin entirely and is a complete tracheal end stoma. So can't explain it better than this drawing can show it, um, there is a t-shirt I always like to remember um, for laryngectomy patients that says, my nose is just an accessory. Um, so there's no connection whatsoever between the mouth and nose and the lungs. Uh, and that's obviously very important to remember in emergency management. A partial laryngectomy, however, um, is a patient that's going to have a temporary tracheostomy, peri-procedure, um, because of surgical edema, but they actually do retain that connection. So these tend to be called voice sparing or partial laryngectomies. They're less common, um, at least in our setting. Um, you'd need to know your own local practice wherever you end up practicing um, to know. And always encourage your providers to be very, um, you know, I've had nurses come and say, oh, yeah, they had laryngectomy. Total partial, uh, so get, get the details from the surgeon if you need to. Okay. Um, compared to a tracheostomy, a fresh laryngectomy has a very stable airway. That whole trachea has been matured out to the skin, um, and that tracheal end stoma is a, a stable airway from the get-go. So lots of different things can be placed into a laryngectomy stoma. Uh, the tubes you see on the left are silicon tubes that are designed for a patient who's spontaneously ventilating, who um, just to sort of help keep that stoma open, reduce granulation tissue. In an emergency, take them out. They serve no purpose for you. Um, you can place an endotracheal tube. You can place one of these special modified laryngectomy tubes if you have one available. Um, and you can also place a small tracheostomy tube into a laryngectomy. And that's where things get really confusing because in the ICU, you can have a patient who has a laryngectomy 
with a tracheostomy tube in place. And people will try to tell you that the patient has a tracheostomy. Make sure you understand exactly what's connected to what in your patients. Um, because people see a trach tube and they think tracheostomy. But you can, like I said, you can put any type of tube that fits into a laryngectomy stoma. In an emergency, so we have these in the OR, we have these special tubes that, you know, they're meant to lie very flat and not perform mainstem intubation on a laryngectomy patient. There's no reason you can't use a 6-0, 7-0, sometimes even 8-0 endotracheal tube. You need to be careful that you're not, you know, sinking it too deep and, and, and having it go mainstem, but um, you can put anything that will seal and make positive pressure ventilation in an emergency. If you have to have a laryngectomy patient on a vent in your ICU, um, you can try to use one of these specialty tubes or you can, um, you know, uh, use a, a smaller tracheostomy tube in, in place. So key points for laryngectomy, um, just like with the tracheostomy, you do need to assess patency. Laryngectomy patients, again, don't have a normal nose. They need to rely on humidifiers um, to prevent secretions from building up inside their trachea. Um, there is no connection between the lungs and mouth and nose, so you're not going to want to try to ventilate or intubate these patients from above. Um, and remember that the tracheal instoma is a very stable airway, um, and you can put uh, any type of cuff tube in to provide positive pressure ventilation. You can also bag mask at the neck stoma, and I'm going to review that with you when we do algorithms um, in a couple minutes. So, you know, I just want to reemphasize one time that there's these situations where you're 100% sure of what you have. You have a patient in the ICU with a tracheostomy tube. I definitely have a patient with a tracheostomy. No, it can be a laryngectomy. I have an unresponsive patient on the floor with a neck stoma. That's, is that a tracheostomy? Is that the, you know, the tube is somewhere across the room that you didn't know about? Is that a laryngectomy? You don't know unless you really know. So um, uh, the default emergency actions, when you stumble upon one of these undifferentiated airways, it will not hurt a laryngectomy patient to have oxygen applied to their mouth and nose. It will only hurt if you don't do it to the stoma also. So put air, put oxygen everywhere while you're trying to sort the situation out. Um, assess gas exchange as fast as you can with capnography. If you're not getting at the mouth and nose, check at the stoma. Um, and make sure whatever tube or stoma is there is patent. Um, and those are a couple very quick things you can do to um, uh, try to uh, give emergency oxygenation to these patients. Um, for tracheal tube patency, a um, couple steps you can take that inner cannula out. You can try to pass a suction catheter. If it seems like the trach itself is blocked, so to, um, to your question about the, you know, why would we ever have a single lumen trach, um, if you have one of those and you do believe that it is blocked, you can try to take down the cuff and see if you or the patient can ventilate around that if you're um, feeling unsure about just pulling it out. So sometimes taking the cuff down and trying to ventilate from the mouth and nose um, can be another step short of taking the tube out. What's that? Anybody know? This is a T-tube. This looks nothing like anything we've talked about so far. Has anybody seen one of these in real life? All right. So this is a, um, a T-tube. It's a tracheal T-tube. Um, and just to review a little bit about the, the anatomy of it, and then we'll talk about the indications, there is an um, a, a extra tracheal limb that comes out uh, through the neck. Um, there's a, a laryngeal limb that goes up, and then a, a tracheal limb that kind of goes down. There's a couple different types of these, um, and I wanted to point out the one that has the cuff. This is a specialty type of T-tube. The cuff here, this is really important. This is a, you're hardly ever gonna see these, but if you do, this can really make a difference. The cuff in a T-tube does not expand a cuff into the trachea. It actually occludes the upper limb. So it converts um, you know, from being able to move air three ways to only being able to move air from the extratracheal limb down into the tracheal limb. 
So, um, you know, whereas if you were trying to, um, you know, do positive pressure, uh, you know, from above, you might think you'd want to kind of open a, open a regular trach type cuff. This is going to preclude you from ventilating through the mouth and nose in this patient. Um, the other thing to know about these is they don't readily adapt to a resuscitation bag. You actually have to have an adapter. So some of them have a custom adapter that will attach to the resuscitation bag, but some of them, um, either the adapter got lost, and you can adapt them with the appropriate sized endotracheal tube adapter again, so popping that top off the ET tube. So T-tubes in general are placed after tracheal injury, after tracheoplasty. Um, they're a combination of a stent and a ventilation tube, and it's impossible to know what percent of airflow is happening through their laryngeal limbs, that one that goes up, versus the extratracheal limb that goes out. Um, and it does require that connector for a resuscitation bag. So if you have a patient um, that has this, you can see where if you would ventilate from above, uh, you know, with a mask in the beginning of an emergency, you potentially could have a significant portion of your airflow come out through the, um, the extracheal limb. Similarly, if you do hook up a resuscitation bag to that limb, it could come back out through the mouth and nose. What do you do? So the first thing you're going to do again is, you're, since you don't know what percent of flow is going where, you're going to apply oxygen to the face and to that extratracheal limb. Um, there's been successful case reports of anesthesia being provided with an LMA placed from above that's then just occluded. So they kind of functionally obliterate that upper limb. Similarly, if you had one that does have a, a balloon in it, you could inflate the balloon for the same effect. Um, and then focus your ventilation efforts only on the extratracheal limb. You can occlude or pack the upper airway and try to ventilate through that extratracheal limb. Um, this is just an example of what you might see if you do try to um, perform a laryngoscopy from above. Um, the upper aspect of that stent might be right there, so this may be a lot more difficult to put a um, translaryngeal uh, endotracheal tube in place. Questions on that? Kind of a bizarre situation, but good to have thought through the airflow at least once before you get into an emergency because um, that can be tricky. So let's talk very quickly about promoting patient safety. Um, and I'm going to reference this. This is guidelines, multidisciplinary guidelines for the management of tracheostomy and laryngectomy airway emergencies. Um, there's a project in the UK called the UK National Tracheostomy Safety Project that um, uh, is affiliated with the group that put out this uh, set of guidelines. And it's a really fantastic thing if you're looking for um, in your unit a way to promote patient safety. And this is the one that we're basically working off of uh, here that's been um, very rewarding and, and, and much needed. The components of safety for these patients are identification, who's got a tracheostomy, who's got a laryngectomy, when was the tracheostomy done, was it percutaneous, was it open, um, education for fellows, for residents, for nurses, RTs, everybody that's caring for these patients, um, and then resources and supplies um, to have what you need to care for these patients in an emergency. So these are some sample signs um, that very clearly read for a non-patent upper airway green for a patent upper airway, differentiate. Um, and these are designed to be head of bed signs that will be right, you know, as soon as that anybody from the code team walks into the room, very obvious. Um, the uh, sign, you know, um, can and, and I think should in a best practice say what type of procedure was done, um, any kind of notes about, you know, how difficult a previous intubation would be, what's happened since then, um, are there stay sutures, and this obviously needs to be revised throughout a patient's um, care. Details about the type of um, trach are there, and this, as we talked about, the outer diameter, remember that was important for trying to switch out a tube, uh, can be listed right on that sign. I'm going to show you an example of an algorithm of how to care for a patient in tracheostomy during an emergency situation. This is obviously not something you're going to want to pick up for the first time. 
at an emergency, um, but it's available and you can have thought through it. In general, on this sign, the purple box is directing you to try to assess the patency of the tube. And then the bottom half of the algorithm is what if you had to take the trach tube out or what if the trach tube is already out when you arrive? So very quickly, um, uh, just, um, can I have a volunteer? Come on down. So we're going to run through um, how to assess a patient for tracheostomy tube patency. This is an example um, of, a, of a kit that could be at the bedside for a patient with a tracheostomy. It's got some extra supplies in it. It's got an extra inner cannula, suction catheter. Let's assume this is all filled out. And then the algorithm is right on the back. So you are part of a code team. You show up, and um, this patient has a trach in situ. And everybody's kind of standing around. They're not sure what's going on. All right. So you have your handy algorithm. So is the patient breathing is the first step. Let's go with no. All right. Okay. So the, uh, the purple algorithm is going to tell us to remove a speaking valve if it's present. So any kind of passing mirror valve, take that off immediately. Um, and then the cess for an inner cannula, if that's present, go ahead and remove that. All right, so remember that this has, to be reconnect, this has to be replaced either with a clean one if that one's obstructed or if that one wasn't the problem, go ahead and put that back in. The algorithm then directs you to suction catheter. So that's going to be in your kit. So you can do, you know, when you're trying to assess the patency of whatever you have in place, you can do, you can try to suction through the inner cannula. You can take the inner cannula out and suction. Go ahead and stick that down there. And as long as this passes through the tube, you have a patent tube, okay? Let's say you don't have a patent tube. All right, so you weren't able to get that through. All right, so now you're worried maybe it's dislodged. All right, and you're not able to get that suction catheter through. So at this point, what you're going to try to do, you're assuming that this trach is not functioning for your oxygen delivery needs. It's either dislodged or something, you know, has happened. Now you're going to try with that tube still in place to see if you can ventilate around it. So she's going to deflate the cuff all the way and see. She's going to look, listen, and feel at the mouth and nose. Is she able to get oxygen moving around? Because if you are, at this point, with a partially dislodged trach, if you can ventilate here with a mask and get chest rise, you know, you can, you can hang out like that for a couple minutes and as long as the sats are coming up and the patient's stabilizing. Let's assume they're not. What's next? Take the tube out. So if you can't get air through it, you know, we've, you know, at this point we've already tried to bag through, and you can't get air around it, then it has to come out. Okay? All right. So now we are at, um, you know, if the patient, if we deflated the cuff and the patient wasn't stable or improving, we're taking the, the um, unsafe tube out. All right. Now, um, different algorithms will direct you differently. We're working on one here that um, really helps to differentiate our, you know, functionally, I call them functionally obliterated upper airways, the people that have this really bad surgical upper airways um, versus somebody that had a percutaneous trach. And in the final or in a, a newer version of this, you'll actually see that there's um, a checkbox for whether you want to try using the mouth and nose first or whether you want to need to just direct your efforts right to the stoma. All right, so let's assume this patient had a perk trach and we've just removed the trach, it's a, a, week, a week ago. So at this point, you're going to go just for the mouth and nose. So I'll take my gloved finger, and I'll just sort of occlude this, and we're just going to ignore the stoma. She's going to manage the airway like she normally would. So let's say this patient has a very difficult upper airway. Yeah, so here's where you're looking for your stay sutures. You can lift and open those. You can try to put something before you. Um, I would suggest that it's easier to put an endotracheal tube in than it is to put a, a, a trach in. You have more tactile feel. All you need to do, and I'm going to pretend, someone stole my endotracheal tube, I'm going to pretend, all you need to do is get that balloon right there. And somebody can be the dedicated tube holder, um, and as long as you can get the balloon up and provide some amount of positive pressure ventilation that stabilizes this patient, go for that, okay? You don't necessarily, if you're concerned about reinserting a fresh trach, 
you know, this is a, this is a, a, a little bit of, of force, um, and you may not need to do that. So if you can get them stabilized with an endotracheal tube, all right. So again, um, you know, a package really includes identification, education, um, the algorithm, and supplies right there at the bedside. For a laryngectomy patient, process is going to be similar, although not quite as many steps. If there's anything in that laryngectomy stoma, assess its patency or take it out. Um, and when you get down to stoma ventilation, so let's say you have a patient who has laryngectomy. They had one of those little silicon tubes in for granulation tissue, but other than that, they've been, I mean, they've had this laryngectomy for years. Um, so, you know, they're, they're very happy with it. But they have some type of cardiopulmonary arrest, and you get called to the bedside as part of the code team. Um, at this point, they're just going to have a stoma. You can take out that little silicon tube, but what are you, you know, what are you going to put there next? One option you have if you're waiting for supplies is you can take either a small face mask, which is going to be included in these emergency kits, or an LMA applied face down to the stoma to kind of cover and try to provide mask ventilation to the stoma. So this is, you know, mouth to stoma instead of mouth to mouth um, as far as your resuscitation. Um, so you can ventilate here, or as we said, any, any cuff tube that will fit can go in a laryngectomy stoma. So whatever you have available. Um, and in the kits that we're preparing here, it'll be a 6 0 endotracheal tube uh, in this package. Okay? Questions on that? Very good. Well, um, that's the whirlwind review of emergency airway management for surgically altered airways. So I want to thank Ellen for inviting me here to talk um, to Drs. Lantry and McCurdy, everybody at the Maryland Critical Care Project for putting this on the web. And um, uh, Dr. Brendan McGrath and the UK National Tracheostomy Safety Project have really given us the um, ability to adapt their algorithms and really been an inspiration for this project here at Maryland. So um, I'd encourage you, they have some fantastic resources. Um, they have some e-learning modules. If you um, just Google UK tracheostomy safety, um, there's some really great stuff up there. So that's where I would send anybody who wants to know more. Very good.